Ephesians chapter 5. And if you'll recall last week, we have some unfinished business in our passage that we studied together last week. Stewardship continues to be a theme that God has brought to the table for us over the last couple Sundays. And God's word continues to encourage us to be good stewards of the financial gifts that we've been given, the spiritual gifts that we've been given, as well as the time that has been allotted by him to serve him. And if you recall in 1 Peter 4, we started our year with the unchanging resolution, and it encouraged us to be right-headed and to be right-hearted and to be responsible with the gifts that have been entrusted to us by the Lord, that we can live for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in last week's message, we were blessed again by God's word to study five commands of wisdom that arm us to destroy dissipation, to destroy living, wasted lives. Commands that ensure that our lives can be spent living for him and walking in wisdom. And if you weren't here for either of the last couple Sundays, of course you're Welcome to go listen to those messages online. But we want to make 2014 the best spiritual year that we ever ever have had. And it should be. If we're growing, right? If we're the most mature that we've ever been. And God is bringing us forward, conforming us to Christ. Then 2014 should be, should be the best spiritual year that we've ever had. Our message last week encouraged us to be filled with the Spirit. And we finished our time by briefly introducing five realities of the Spirit-filled life that I said we would fully engage this Sunday. And that still is the plan, by the way. But before we get started, I wanted to share something that the Lord did in, in my heart as He shepherded me this week. It's something that I wanted to pass on to you guys as well as an under-shepherd at Cornerstone as I reflected on the realities of the Spirit-filled life. And it's this. God is so faithful. He is so faithful. And throughout the New Testament, He provides passages that allow us to see where we're at spiritually in Christ. He does that in His faithfulness. And it's his desire for us to grow forward spiritually. And perhaps one of the most meaningful and deepest expressions of the Father's love is the instruction that assists us and propels us forward in Christ. Our Father in heaven wants us to know him personally. And he wants us to grow in him spiritually. He provides different passages throughout the Bible that ensure that we do. And they can help, again, gauge our progress. And sometimes the Lord uses these passages to convict us of sin in our life and it provides evidence that maybe maybe our hearts aren't born again. That's, That's a measure of God's faithfulness. That's a measure of his love. How deceptive would it be if, if we didn't know him and we just were allowed to continue the course in our, in our life and think that we were saved when we weren't. 
It's the preserving love of God. And then there are many other passages that allow us to see our growth in Christ as we mature in our sanctification. And these passages, they function as a spiritual litmus test. A litmus test, for those who have a chemistry background, you know that it involves um, testing solutions to determine how much of an acid or a base is present. pH actually stands for the power of hydrogen. In spiritual litmus tests, the pH would stand for a progressing heart. And yes, I just made that up, okay? So <laughs> it's true, it, but, but it's, it, 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 they reveal how our hearts are growing, how we are moving forward in Christ's likeness. First Peter 4, for example, it allowed us to take a closer look at agape love. It allowed us to consider the aspects of agape love in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, and the strides that we're taking to, to reach out, that it takes effort to be patient, to be kind, right? To be all those things, long-suffering and gracious, and not keep a records of wrongs suffered. And then the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is another litmus test. And a study of these heart attitudes can be pretty revealing. It can allow us to see what's evident in our life and take great encouragement that God, his spirit is at work in our hearts. And sometimes it allows us to see where we're lacking in our spiritual walks. And then you have the entire book of James, which is actually um, God created. It was uh, given and, and granted as a series of tests for the earliest Christians. It's even argued that it was the very first New Testament epistle that was ever written. And it was used by God to validate the faith of the earliest Christians, and it still functions in that capacity today. Well, today our passage will function as another spiritual litmus test. And we're going to study Ephesians 5, verses 19 through 21, but I'm going to start reading in Ephesians 5.15 so we can gain and refresh uh, the context for us. Okay, so verse 15, reading from the ESV, says this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our study last week showed us those five commands in those opening verses that armed us to destroy dissipation. First, God shared the importance of looking carefully how we walk. He said that we're going to, the wisdom reveals that we're going to encounter existing obstacles that can pull out in front of us and cause dissipation. And then second, God instructed us to make it our habit not to become foolish. As we looked at the first teeter-totter verse, 
worldly weeds of foolishness can attack us at the base, right? They can hit us at the base and start to wrap around us and weigh us down and lead us into great dissipation. In the third command, the Lord introduced the weedly, <laughs> worldly weed killer, <laughs> which was making it our habit to understand what the will of the Lord is. And God's will allowed us to learn that it is anti-dissipation, right? His will is to walk in wisdom and it's anti-dissipation. It's anti-foolishness. We also learn that it's impossible by divine design to engage foolishness in God's desired will at the same time. The fourth command was making it our habit not to get drunk, which warns of dissipation that awaits for those who drink excessively. And we also learned that this was just one of many examples that can lead to wasting our lives. And then the fifth and final command of wisdom instructed us to be spirit-filled. And Dr. MacArthur shared what it didn't mean first before God's word revealed what it does mean. The spirit-filled life, we said, cannot be based on past experiences or future experiences. We said the spirit-filled life is a present reality. It's now. It's where we're at in the moment. Being filled with the Spirit is always a present condition. And then we contrasted God's example of dissipation with being Spirit-filled in verse 18. And we concluded that just as liquor controls uh, a drunkard, right? So too, the Spirit of God should control the life of a believer. It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment submission to the Spirit's control. And our sermon concluded with the question, so what does the Spirit-filled life look like? Which leads us right back to the point where we left off, okay? How's that for an introduction? Okay, there we are. Um, we are right back to where we needed to be. And I hope that was a, a, a helpful recap of last week's message. And for those that weren't here, that gives you a little bit of insight on what we talked about. And we could potentially call this message the flashing five, okay? Why? Because Ephesians chapter five, right? And we've already got five commands of wisdom. And then today we're going to see five realities of the spirit-filled life. Okay, there's this five, five, five thing going on here. And I wanted to let you know, just in case someone was inclined to think that somehow I try to reach for five points in all my sermons. I don't I want to assure you that I don't. I just take what the Lord gives us. Well, as the sermon proposition does indicate in your bulletin, we're going to look at five reflecting realities of the Spirit-filled life. And I use the word reflecting because they help us see what the Spirit-filled life looks like, and they can serve as yet another spiritual litmus test to help us see our progressing hearts, our pH levels. I also opted to use the word realities instead of forms of evidence or results because, as we learned last week, it is a present reality. Being Spirit-filled is a present reality. What God shows us in His Word today isn't a spiritual wish list for believers. What God shows us in his word today, it isn't um, reserved only for elite or mature Christians. What God shows us in his word today isn't reserved for the ancient Near East and the cultural uh, setup that was taking place 
in the first century church. These are down-to-earth, everyday realities in the lives of born-again believers. And if we just look at how practical they are, just with a brief overview, they involve this, speaking, singing, making music or melody, giving thanks, and submitting. Very practical. Five reflecting realities of the spirit-filled life, and let's take a closer look at each one of these. Reality number one is found in verse 19, and it is this. Spirit-filled believers speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And here, Paul starts by giving us both a method and a means. The Greek participle is best translated speaking, but your Bible translation may say addressing, which is in the ESV, or it could say communicating. And in this context, the Apostle Paul is clearly stating the method that believers are to use their voices to communicate the truth. We, we got to talk, right? These are things that are going to fill our hearts, and then using the words of Christ out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We aren't able to see much more than communication here in Ephesians. But when we look at the parallel passage in Colossians, which is the sister letter of Ephesians, I mentioned that last week, it provides more insight. Colossians 3.16 says, teaching and admonishing one another. Both passages go on to describe the means with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we'll get to those in a moment. But we need to see the description of the method clearly. It is talking about communication that comes in the form of teaching and instruction as well as admonishing okay which can also be considered warning one another and this is what spirit-filled believers do for each other and it strikes at the very core of discipleship this isn't designated for elders and overseers this isn't being described as a spiritual gift that only some in the church have and others don't. This is the reflecting reality for all spirit-filled Christians. Every born-again believer who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within is being described as someone who communicates teaching, someone who admonishes their fellow brother or sister in Christ. And we can't just stop at the method. We also have to consider the means. And we find that in verse 19, what does it say that the means are? Survey says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay, or songs. Yep, the Greek word that is translated psalms here is used seven times in the New Testament, and it's referencing Old Testament psalms. Okay, but if we're going to split here, uh, split hairs here, and I don't have a lot to split, you guys know that. The Apostle Paul wasn't just talking about necessarily quoting Old Testament psalms. He was talking about communicating the truths. You could actually be talking about a psalm. And this, we do this all the time, right? We, we say things like, God's word will give us a straight path, right? It will. Instead of saying, uh, well, the psalmist says, thy word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, okay? We, we, we bring the idea we bless people with the thought that is coming from the psalm. In care groups, someone might really be depressed with a battle of a sin that they're really struggling with. 
And someone might bring Psalm 32 or Psalm 51 to encourage their hearts and to minister to them. Maybe it's two mothers talking about their struggle and their need for patience as they're raising their kids. Okay? They might come together and encourage each other with many of the Psalms that talk about God's long-suffering and his patience with us as his children. Maybe it's six dozen other things. You get the point, right? We, th- this is how, it's that overflow. We minister to each other using the Psalms. And there are numerous, numerous examples, but this is just a sample. The second means mentioned is hymns. And the origin of this word is unclear, so we can't really go into it with a whole lot of depth. The word is a noun here, and it's only seen in verse 19 and in Colossians 3.16. But when we see it as a verb, there's actually something that's pretty telling about it. In Acts 16.25, it's actually employed as a verb when Paul and Silas were singing hymns of praise in the Philippian prison. And what is so interesting is that there appears to be some overlap here between the first two realities. And even the third means is spiritual songs. Where we get our English word ode. And ode is, a, ode is usually an expression that you hear in the South where we've come from. They drop their L's and they'll say it's code outside. Or I told you not to do that. But we're talking about an ode, okay? An ode is a poem that expresses strong feelings. And they're often set to music. And both psalms and hymns contain many odes. And We'll get to the uh, reality number two in, in just a bit, but I want to spend some time applying reality number one. And so if we rewind the tape, okay, and sometimes this is hard when, when you're preaching a message because we don't have the, the privilege of reading the entire letter right at the top of the service, right? That, that's what happened. That's how the people received it. They, it was read to them. And so there was this continual flow of thought with the letter. And that's why I, when you can and you do have the opportunity to read through an entire book, it can really bless you. It really allows you to gain a sense of what's being communicated. Ephesians 4, 29 and 30 say this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And certainly Paul, okay, as, as he, he wrote this, this was in his thought. And certainly his readers, as they had this read to him, this was freshly ringing in their ears as well. And it should ring in our ears. We see another direct connection with these words and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And God wants us to see that corrupting talk or speech tears down. Corrupting can also be translated foolish. Okay? Direct connect to dissipation. Foolish talk. It's dissipation. It's a waste of time. It can be wasteful or rotten as another translation. This type of speech, it goes on to say, grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves God. You can actually interpret the word that, uh, the Greek word translated grieves to quench. Your translation may say that. It, it quenches the Holy Spirit. It chokes out the word. Corrupt speech 
chokes out the word of God. And there's a contrast seen between these two passages. Corrupt speech quenches the spirit while being spirit-filled has a share of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And as I mentioned to you before, our hearts, our speech really is telling of where we're at spiritually. It really is a great gauge. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the Lord was actually rebuking the Pharisees who were spewing out of their mouth all of this corrupting speech. All these have-tos and all of these forms of legalism. It was a rebuke. And it revealed their heart. And the Lord was trying to get them to see his point. And the beauty of the Spirit-filled life is that we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate breathing in psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms, right? I keep saying psalms, songs, right? So that we get to minister to other people. That we can breathe them out. That we can breathe them out and care for those uh, friends of ours that are, are hurting. That we can care for those in care group. That we can minister to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What an overflow of the Spirit-filled life. This reflecting reality allows us to rejoice in our communication that edifies. And this certainly enables and equips us to build others up. And remember, this is a spiritual litmus test as we consider this reflecting reality. And there's no condemnation here. This is, again, helping us gauge where we're at. And we can celebrate when God sees it. What a joy it is when somebody is hurting. And then God opens up and you say, I have just the verse. Or maybe you don't have the verse. So you text somebody in your care group. And you say, so-and-so is really battling with this. What can we do? How can we encourage them? And they say, oh, um, Psalm 119.11 would be perfect. Take them there. You know? And it, we, we just see that at work, and we get to celebrate it. It's a result of being spirit-filled. And we certainly do need to be transparent so that our progressive hearts, right, progressing hearts, um, continue to be moving forward. If I can just have all the attention of the husbands and the fathers in the room, I want to just talk to you guys specifically for a moment. As the spiritual leaders of our homes, we have a responsibility to shepherd this in our house. We cannot allow, we can't allow for corrupt or perverse speech in our, and, and tearing down speech. We can't, we can't. And if it's coming out of our mouths, or if it should on occasion, and it will, it will come out of our mouth, and we have to be the first to acknowledge it and, be, and take ownership and lead as responsible spiritual leaders in our home by example. We have to own it, right? And this will certainly bless your wives and encourage them because wives also, right? We all are vulnerable to the, the criticisms. We're all vulnerable to those things that want us to, to, to tear down and talk about things. That's, that's the flesh. That's just what the heart does when it's not spirit-led. And men, this will give us an opportunity that 
If one of our children are struggling in this area, we can go to Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. You have it right there. You open it up. You go straight to it. And, and you talk about the reality. This is why. This is why we're not going to allow that kind of speech come out of our mouth. This is exactly why. And it could end up being a great gospel opportunity. Paves the way right into Uh, the gospel opportunity that we're given as parents when we see this become a pattern, right? They just, um, we're seeing it even at the earliest of ages and all the parents with uh, the littles, you know that it starts, they are evil from their youth. You just see it. You see selfishness and you see um, their hearts and the corruptive nature of their hearts. Well, We're studying five reflecting realities of the spirit-filled life. The first reality of being spirit-filled is speaking to one another. And that was the method and the means, of course, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The second reality is singing. Verse 19 continues, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And there's actually two participles in this clause. The word translated singing has a reference to human singing as well as animals singing. You can listen to a rooster crow or a coyote howl if you live near the mountains. Occasionally you hear them howling. It also has a connection to inanimate objects like the wind whistling through the trees. And this immediately made me think of John 3.8 which says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. My mind immediately went to John 3.8. And it made me think about how we are spiritually dead and lifeless before the Spirit. Much like an unexpected wind came in and caused us to be born again. And just like the blowing through the trees makes music, so also the Holy Spirit breathes through us, allowing us to sing songs of praise. Doesn't that sound so beautiful? But that's not what it's not what it's teaching. I'm just going to tell you that's that's some serious eisegesis right there. Didn't mean to mislead you, but my heart was, and maybe it was the poet in me. I just got captured by that 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 reality. But it's it's not what it means. So quit your daydreaming and come back to the sermon. All right. I know it was beautiful while it lasted, but the the only other place where uh, the form of this word is uh, is found is actually in the book of Revelation. And it's not used in a participial uh, uh, sense. It's used in, in a noun sense. And it's talking about um, singing a song. And singing means singing. And a true reflecting reality of spirit-filled people involves lifting our voices to God. And that's just what we had the opportunity to experience earlier. This is the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. And again, it's a spiritual litmus test that reveals the hearts of people. If someone is singing, they're expressing something. Even the unbelieving world engages in the overflow of their hearts, singing secular music. It's usually about sex and broken relationships or heartache or materialism, but that's to be expected. It's what their hearts are filled up with, right? And praise God. Praise God, because that could be us. Praise God, we could be singing those songs, but God, in his mercy and in his grace and in his goodness, has put a new song 
He's put a new song in our heart to sing. Our hearts have been changed and the Holy Spirit encourages us to sing of the reflecting reality of God's grace and purposes, his attributes, his character. And they become more and more real as we, we learn and we grow daily. Christian author Warren Wiersbe tells a story about one of his seminary professors who served as a missionary for many years in Africa. And Wiersbe shared this. When he first arrived on the African mission field by riverboat, from the banks of the river, he could hear screaming and wailing and the beating of drums. But 25 years later, when he went down to the river to leave the field, people lined the banks and were singing, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels, let angels prostrate fall. What a difference. He goes on to say, quote, the Christian faith is a singing faith. We sing of our salvation. We sing of our victories. We sing about his mercy and faithfulness. And we sing about his coming. And his final quote is perfect for our application. Are you singing praises to God in your life? If you've lost your song, it may mean that you've lost something else. Your vision of God, faith in his word, or perhaps sin is dominating your life. And I think it's a fair question if we're not singing, right? If we're, as believers, we're not um, singing. And I know some of you will probably say, Pastor John, you haven't heard my voice yet. There's a, there's a reason that I don't sing. I'm going to get to you in just a minute with that one. But it does reveal something. We, there, 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 a fruit of the Spirit is joy. It will lead to singing. And that's the delight. And for those of you who might be tempted to say, well, my, I just don't like the sound of my own voice. Well, you have the wrong focus. You really do. God doesn't mind your voice. He created it. He knows exactly what it sounds like. And you know what? He'll delight in it. He'll delight in hearing it. So we need to step away from that mentality if we struggle with that. He created us. Spirit-filled people sing, sing, sing. They do. We are studying five reflecting realities of the Spirit-filled life. The third reality is psalming or making music or melody. Verse 19, 19 continues, making melody to the Lord with your heart. And the Greek participle can literally be translated psalming. Okay, pretty wild. And all God's people said, what? <laughs> psalming? Are you, yes, yes, I'm being for real. This participle finds its origin in the Greek word that literally means to pluck primarily a stringed instrument. And some have suggested that the word intrinsically means a stringed instrument. And that's why your Bible translation might say making music or making melody, which is the case with the ESV. We don't use psalming because even though I think it would be pretty cool, um, it's not very common in our English vernacular today. Uh, the remainder of the clause offers us more insight into the actual meaning. The prepositional phrase can be translated with your hearts to the Lord. And if we put the grammar together, it would sound something like this. Psalming or making melody with your hearts to the Lord. And the best way for us to understand this um, is to have an 
an internal and an external focus. And we actually got the external uh, focus first, or we get that first, and we'll see the internal focus next. Reality number two, singing is an external expression with our lips. But God wants us to see the internal expression or the connection with our hearts. This also makes great sense if you think about it practically. To be spirit-filled moment by moment, day by day. I mean, you can only imagine what it would be like for our coworkers or maybe someone in our family was sick and we were singing all the time, right? Um, it might get a little bit um, annoying. They may not uh, be blessed, at least from their perspective in that regard. And this is where reality number three kicks in and it says, we can literally make internal music. And we do it in a variety of ways. Not all music is the same, right? The same is true when spirit-filled believers are psalming or making melody internally. In Romans 12, it calls us to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. There's different instruments that we play. There's different instruments in our heart that help us to minister as spirit-filled people, to people depending on the moment. Those are very different melodies. And just like an orchestra made up of many different instruments, and it's able to play different songs, our hearts also play different melodies according to the need of the moment. And God wants us to see that it involves the heart. Verse 19, making melody is followed by two prepositions. In our hearts and to the Lord. There's a heart connection and a God direction. That's how I would define it. And that, you know what? That really de- that defines worship. That defines the, the ministry of worship. There's a heart connection and it goes in a God direction. It really does. As a church, we have a chance to gather every week, to gather corporately, and... I wanted to just feature a few of the things because there's music that's actually being played in our hearts all week by different people. And it culminates on a Sunday morning. And I think many of us may not realize all that goes into it. The Holy Spirit helps the admin team work diligently to shape the announcements, the bulletins, all the communications that's going to take place, they, they work diligently to make sure that the rooms are set up, that people are in place from parking lot to greeters to ushers. Every aspect, children's ministries is covered. There's a lengthy list of details. And the Holy Spirit helps the worship team prepare as well. And it includes creating a set list and organizing all the music creating the PowerPoints, containing all the lyrics. Then they practice. And then there's a sound check before execution, all before leading us on a Sunday. And the Holy Spirit helps me as a preacher prepare, guides me as I study the passage, as I wrestle with coming up with a homiletical outline that honors God's Word. As I look, pray, prepare, and produce something that would magnify Christ. 
And all this, all of this is an overflow. All of this is an overflow of the music that gets played to worship God when we gather. All of that takes place. But there's one thing that I haven't mentioned. There's an aspect that I have yet to mention. And it's this. Our hearts. There's preparation, right, that the Holy Spirit leads to bring us to this place. To have us be ready. That is a mark of his faithfulness. We get to celebrate that. That allows us to engage. So we do want a heart connection, and we do want a Godward direction, but there's preparation that needs to take place before we get there. And God is faithful to do that for us. He is so faithful. He wants our worship to be what it's supposed to be. He really does. All of this is an overflow of the Spirit's work in our life. Making melody in our hearts fuels our desire to serve Him and worship Him together. And the Holy Spirit unifies the orchestra of our hearts. I mean, those guys really know what they're doing, right? When they're up there leading that entire orchestra. I just thought you just had to get up there and just like, you could do anything you want. But when you actually go and, and, and witness it, it's, it's remarkable. Well, well God, God does that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and guides us to effective worship each Sunday. We're studying five reflecting realities of the Spirit-filled life. The first reflecting reality of the Spirit-filled life is speaking to one another. The second was singing. The third reality is making melody. And the fourth is this, giving thanks. Verse 20 describes it this way for us. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth reflecting reality can be translated giving thanks or expressing thanks or being grateful. And then there's this Greek adverb that's right next to it that's included, that's translated always or at all times. And I failed to mention this earlier, but all these participles, they're in, a, in the present tense, which means that there's this ongoing action, right? It's just continual. And spirit-filled hearts are thankful hearts. Spirit-filled believers reflect this reality unless, of course, the spirit is quenched or choked out is mentioned earlier. And I don't, this, this involves a little bit of weightiness, but it's needed. We, I, I, I need to share this. Our flesh wages war against the Spirit. And this is exactly what we're taught in Romans 7 and Galatians 5. And even Galatians 5, 16 and 17, it says that if we walk by the Spirit, that we won't carry out the desires of the flesh. And then verse 17 says, for the de- desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Naturally, our sinful flesh leads us to grumble and to complain. It's not inclined to express gratitude or thankfulness to God. And this is where verse 20 instructs us to direct it, right? What's it say? To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just what are we giving thanks to God for? The verse says this, all things. And the parallel verse in Colossians 3.17 says this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One commentator said it this way, thanksgiving to God should encompass all things that come into life's path. And when believers are filled by the Spirit, this will be their response, even when dissatisfaction and difficulties enter into the picture. In difficult circumstances 
an attitude of thanksgiving is easier to achieve with the knowledge that God is always in control. And certainly we are rescued by his sovereignty all the time. That is, that is um, I would say as a, as a believer, if there's um, one attribute of God that has rescued my heart time and time again, is it not his sovereignty? Is it not that he is in control of all things? Even that person who's driving pathetically slow in front of me? Even this person who was in the line at Walmart and they finally got up with all their groceries and then, oh, I need to get my wallet out. And I, or my, you know, get, oh, where's my, my purse at? It was like, well, we just stood in line for 15 minutes. I mean, don't we have our ATM card out and about? Or maybe I'm just the only one that thinks this is my sinful heart, see? There it is right there. It is my flesh, right? And it wages war. But yet at the same time, when, when God, it's so beautiful and his sovereignty, he can let me, he says, you know what, slow down. You got, you, slow down, you got time, you can pray right now. You can pray. Pray, that, um, pray for a, a million things that there are to pray for right now. A million and one. A ton of stuff. This reflecting reality of thanksgiving helps us to focus on what we need to be focused on. And it helps us to focus on Christ and what we have in Christ, not what this world has yet to give us. And I love the Corey Ten Boom quote. Everyone know the story? She was in a concentration camp. Immense suffering. And she said this, you never know that Jesus Christ is all you need until Jesus Christ is all that you have. Wow. Wow. Talk about being spirit-filled. The same with the Apostle Paul, right? He, he, God brought him to a place. He matured him to a place with his contentment that it didn't matter what he had or what he didn't have. He had Christ. And it was enough. It was enough. And I'm not trying to point fingers, and I'm not trying to, uh, it's my own heart that I'm speaking to because I, I, I struggle with contentment. I can struggle with it. And I have a feeling that I'm not alone. I look back, you can look back in life and we, we, we can be conditioned to, to think certain ways and we say, you know what, I'll be content once my student loans are paid off. I'll be content once I've moved out of my parents' house. I'll, I'll be content once I get that job or I get that next big promotion. I'll be content once I get married and I have children. I'll be content if I get back into shape. I'll be content if things settle down in work or in my life, right? I'll be content if this happens or that happens. Can I share something? No, you won't. No, you won't. You won't. You will not be content until Christ is everything. And you understand that everything that else that we have is just a bonus, it's just an incentive. And if we get it, great. And if we don't get it, it's not a big deal. We have what matters most. And, and we can deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow we are content when the truth is we may not be. 
Jesus Christ can't just be a portion of our life. He has to be the point of our life. He can't just be a part of our life. He has to be the purpose. He's everything. He's everything. And our contentment completely depends upon him. And you might be asking the question right now, I thought we were talking about giving thanks. We are. We are. Being content in Christ allows us to be thankful for everything else that we have. And the number one threat to the spirit-filled reality of giving thanks is searching for contentment in other things. It also tempts us to look to other things, especially when serious trials come. A terminal illness, a job loss, a battle with alcohol or drugs, a broken marriage, a struggle with rust, you name it, the trial comes. And when our contentment is completely in Christ, then when we, we will, we'll, we'll look to him to get our answers. That's who we go to. And that leads us to thanksgiving because he provides. But when our contentment is based on other things, then guess what we do? What do we do? You said it. You know, you know what I'm going to say. What do we look for for our contentment? If it's in other things, then we look to other things. And you know what? It lets us down every time. By divine design, it lets us down every time. And no gratitude can be given. We have no desire to give thanks. And even when God does provide, I've learned this in my own life, even then, you know, if there's discontentment, then even when he provides um, what I wanted, and if I just had this, then things would be okay, right? And then guess what else? He provides it. And then what? It gets replaced by something else. That's the deceptive nature of our hearts. It is. This reflecting reality allows our hearts to be content in Christ alone. It, it rescues us from seeking contentment in other things. It helps us to praise him in what might even be the most impossible circumstances. Even when you're in the midst of crazy crazy trials. I can just, I, I think of, t- I, I have a million things running through my mind as I think about people who have found their contentment in Christ. And I, I think of Doug and Candy Scott back in Hickory, North Carolina, whose um, daughter was um, diagnosed um, with uh, Ewing sarcoma, just lethally, just, just lethal. Just, um, I think they gave her a 10% chance to live. You know what they did? They were content in Christ. They praised God for all the years that, that, that he had given their daughter to them. And you know what they did? They, they, they held her with a loose grip. Why? Because she's not theirs. She's God's. And you know what God did? Oh, God had this man. You know, I was a pastor there for four years, and he ministered more th- to me through this trial than I, 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 I'm certain than I ministered to people all four years that I was there. And he fell down on his face, prostrate down, and said, God, glorify yourself. I'm going to worship you and whatever you're going to do. You know my love for my daughter. You know this. You know this. You know this. What's remarkable is that she's still alive and that she's continuing, and they can't explain it. They just can't explain why she continues to hang on. 
And we'll wait to see God is putting himself on display. And the reason that he can do that is because their contentment is in the right place. Well, we're studying five reflecting realities of the spirit-filled life, and we've arrived at the fifth and final one. Verse 21 reveals it by showing us that the spirit-filled life involves submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Of all the realities, this one intrigued me the most. I mean, you just look at the list. Speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting? Okay? It just seemed, it just, it just seemed like it was out of place. It just seemed like it should be somewhere else. But as we zoom in and take a closer look, the Lord will help us to see why it belongs. There are three elements of God, uh, three elements that God would have us see. First, he wants us to understand what submission is. Second, he wants us to understand who is responsible for submission and to submission. And third, he wants us to clearly understand its purpose. What is submission? It literally means to order oneself under another. In some translations, say submitting or subjecting yourselves. In this passage, the result of being spirit-filled is submission to one another. And its original origin was actually as a military term. It, It actually encouraged people to fall into rank or into order. And the tactical nature of the word can be seen if we just simply break it down. You have sub and you have mission, right? Sub, prefix, below, like submarine, submarine, under, water, okay? Submission means under the mission or the, the purpose or the desire of another. That's what we do when we submit. That is what it is. Secondly, God wants us to understand who is responsible for submission and to submission. Who is responsible for submission? Clear answer, God is. God is. He created the world with submission in mind. And there's an order to everything. He created the world in an order and he created it so that it would have order. And this, help us, this helps us understand who is responsible to submission. Everyone and everything, right? God created it with, with submission in mind. And the problem or the breakdown occurs when Sin enters into the picture, and sin since day one of the fall is a rejection of the submission to God or God's purposes. Our sin nature does not want to submit itself to anyone or anything. And this is why when you and I were unbelievers, that we were able to enjoy our independence, right? And we celebrated our individualism, and this fueled our self-centeredness and our selfishness. We believe the world's lies. You got to be true to yourself. You need to look out for number one. Nothing could be more anti-Christ. This describes every person on the planet without Christ, even though the world attempts to cover it up with self-serving good intentions. The third element that God wants us to see and understand is the purpose of submission. Submission purposes 
to help us see our need for Christ. Christ saves us from that anti-submission mindset. And the helper he sent, the Holy Spirit, also cultivates a healthy spiritual fear of Christ. And it's seen at the end of our verse. The Apostle Paul shows that submission to one another is not something that is to be taken lightly, but rather is to be done in the fear of Christ. And the Greek word translated fear is the word phobos, or that's the noun form. Phobeo is where we get our, our word phobia, which is uh, used to describe terror or fright. And there's a wide variety of meanings, but fear or reverence are the best translations here. And so when we put it all together, the verse is saying this, order oneself under another in the fear of Christ. As believers, we represent Christ and this allows us to serve one another in a very real and practical sense. And I just want to say this on Friday evening, I I received an invitation to go hang out with the guys that were in the Seal Beach care group. And we had a chance just to meet at Wingstop and um, that was my first experience at Wingstop. And it was a good experience. Enjoyed some hot wings and it was a good time. But you know what blessed me so much was seeing the reality of this taking place in the group. This submitting to one another. This submission to one another in the fear of Christ. Praying for one another. Encouraging one another. Being accountable to one another. You guys bless me more than you know. And I, my wife will even share with you when I got home. She said, how was it? And I said, it was so encouraging. It was so encouraging to see that taking place. And this spiritual environment is an overflow of being spirit-filled. And I know many of you are in other care groups who have had similar, similar experiences. Submission is a very real, reflecting reality of the spirit-filled life. And care groups are the life-on-life ministry of this church. And if you're currently not in a care group, I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. God wants the very best for you. And he certainly desires for you to have a complete and satisfying spirit-filled life. And sometimes we don't even know what we're missing out on until we get exposed to it, right? We, we, we're like, wow, how long has this been going on? You guys have been meeting for how long? Gosh, I can't believe I finally, finally came to, to check it out. Well, today's passage has served us well, and it's allowed us to see how God's Spirit works in our lives in five very real and reflecting ways. And I came across this prayer that was actually written by a pastor that I think paints a vivid picture of what the Spirit-filled life looks like. And I'm going to read it. It's very brief. We'll use this to uh, set up our prayer at the close of our service. It says this, Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, to be what you require. And Lord, if others are to be your messengers to me, I am willing to hear and heed what they have to say. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father,
This sermon is really about your faithfulness put on display through the life and the work that only your Holy Spirit can provide. And Lord, we rejoice in you. We praise you for giving us the opportunities that you have blessed us with to to breathe in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs deeply. And that our life continues to be shaped by the work of the Spirit. And from beginning to end, whether it's your word, whether it's singing or making melody in our heart, whether it's giving thanks or having the opportunity to link spiritual arms with brothers and sisters in Christ, it is you. It is you on display. You alone are worthy of the praise for this. And we get to celebrate it. We ask that you would continue to allow us to live spirit-filled lives. And Father, we want to acknowledge the areas where our foolishness or our sin is choking out the opportunity for us to have the fullness of the Spirit that you would have for us. We want to be filled. And Father, there could be someone here today who says, you know what, none of this is taking place in my life. None of it. None of it. And Father, you would call them to a place of repentance. You would call them to a place to put their faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust completely in Him for the forgiveness of their sins, to look to Him, to die to self so that they can be born again to live for Him. And Father, I pray that that would be your will for someone here today if they are in that place. That they would come to the end of self and come to the beginning of you and the Spirit-filled life. And Lord, you will be faithful and you will show up and you will allow them to see your work in time. We can celebrate that together as all of us who are born again celebrate it each and every week. Thank you for this great privilege to see the Spirit-filled life. We pray that you'll continue to grow us forward in every way and allow us to praise you and thank you for all the work that you've done. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.